0: The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at Calvarytruth.org. You'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter six. We're gonna let me read this text and we'll look back at chapter two uh, about something. We're just finishing up the book of, of Ephesians, and this is the section beginning in verse 10 about spiritual warfare. Listen to what Paul writes to these believers. He says, "'Finally, be strong in the Lord "'and in the strength of his might. "'Put on the full armor of God "'so that you will be able to stand firm "'against the schemes of the devil. "'For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, "'but against the rulers, against the powers, "'against the world forces of this darkness.' Those are all titles of spirit beings that were developed in the intertestamental period. They knew exactly what he was talking about. They were, he was talking about Satan leading a, a, an attack on believers and his demons and his minions his spiritual minions that followed him uh, to come up against us and to undermine our faith, undermine our trust in God, as he did uh, Eve and Adam in the garden. He says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to, to resist in the evil day. The evil day is referring to the day that he comes against us. Uh, and we're usually not all under attack at the same time. So you can typically talk to some fellow believers. But uh, it's a very real situation. He does come against us and he has specific ways that he attacks us. And we'll take a look at those. Verse 13, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And then he he enumerates all the different pieces of this armor that we're to put on. He says in verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. And we will explain all these things as we go through them over this next two weeks with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on behalf On my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. Paul is in prison in Rome and he's asking them to pray for him that he'd be able to speak clearly and straightforwardly the gospel of Jesus Christ. What happens after this imprisonment is that there was a great number of guards, those who were part of the uh, Praetorian Guard, they came to faith in Christ. And so Paul was able to speak and he was able to share the gospel and even his captors, many of them came to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Now I would like you to turn back with me to chapter uh, two, the first few verses of chapter two. And I want you to hear who the enemies of the believer are. One of the things the Bible is real clear about is when you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you become his, his enemies become yours. Listen to this, he says in Ephesians chapter two, verse one: "And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked. You walked in sin because you had a you have a sin nature. That's something that we all have in common. According in which you formerly walked, according to the course of the this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, there Satan, of, or the of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience." He says that he energizes us before we come to faith in Christ, that we would be uh, receptive to his influence. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Now he mentions all three of our enemies here, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is a system, and it's, uh, it's the Greek word cosmos, and cosmos means an ordered system. That's what it's all about, an ordered system. Satan has developed an ordered system to stand against the gospel and against Jesus Christ. And he wants to convince you that he can use you in doing that. And he wants to empower you. He wants to influence you. We're also told about the flesh, which is you. It's, it's who we are. And when we fall into the trap of being fleshly, as the New Testament talks about it, we are come under the influence of the flesh, our own selfishness. And so we begin to look at the world as existing for us. And we want from where we are living and how we are living, we want it to serve us. So the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Satan himself is the great enemy of God, and he wants to undermine our faith. If you want to get a picture of what he's really like, you can go back to Genesis chapter 3 and see his temptation of Adam and Eve, or you can listen to this song by Bob Dylan. So I'll I'll sing this to you. No, I'm not going to sing it to you. I'll just quote this. He's talking about Satan. I'm going to me pick it up in the second verse. He says, He's got a sweet gift of gab. he got a harmonious tongue. He knows every song of love that's ever been sung. Good intentions can be evil. Both hands can be full of grease. <laughs> you know that sometimes Satan comes as a man of peace. Sometimes he comes as a man of peace. Well, first he's in the background, then he's in the front. Both eyes are looking like they're on a rabbit hunt. Nobody can see through him not even the chief of police, you know that sometimes Satan comes as a man of peace. Now what he's saying is he's deceptive. It's all get out. Satan never comes in a way that you expect him to. And so what we're going to do is look at this whole issue of spiritual warfare over this week and next week, because that's what Ephesians 6 is all about. Your relationship with the devil is, is made clear here. According to Ephesians six ten through 20, which we just read, the Christians involved in a warfare, This war is not against flesh and blood, but against Satan and his minions, the spirit beings that fell with him. We're told in one place that there were about a a third of the angels fell with Satan, and we don't know if that's exactly what the text is implying, but it sure seems like it. If we are to be effective in our struggle against Satan in our lives, we have to know what he's up to. You have to understand what Satanic attack is all about. Satan's main objective for your life is to keep you from trusting Jesus Christ. He doesn't want you to rest in Christ. If you remember, Jesus said, if you abide in me, which means to rest in me, you come to settle down and be at home in Christ. You can ask whatever you desire and it will be given to you. That's what he promises. If we come to rest in Christ, we abide in Christ. So Satan doesn't want you to abide in Christ. And in order to Uh, to recognize his tactics and be prepared to stand against his attacks, we have to know what the Bible says about them. So that's what we want to take a look at. Now, the next thing is, what is Satan's motive? Why is he doing this? I don't remember what I put in your notes. I didn't put a whole lot, just a sketchy little outline. And what I'm going to do at the end of this little series that we do over these two weeks, I'm going to have detailed notes, which I know you love detailed notes. Somebody just told me, I handed out some notes in my Bible study. He goes, I didn't understand a word of that. That made no sense to me. Well, I hope this does make sense. Uh, and in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, we have Satan's motive revealed to us. And what's going on in this passage is that, that Isaiah is prophesying against the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Remember when uh, Israel was taken down into, or Judah actually was taken down into uh, Babylon, and they were there for 70 years in captivity? Well, he, as he begins to speak about the king of Babylon, he reveals the person behind him, the spirit being behind him. And uh, this is what he's, he's telling who it is that's energizing Nebuchadnezzar. And they felt the brunt of that. They experienced it because they were there for 70 years. And it, this passage reveals, this passage in Isaiah 14 reveals what Satan's motive is. Let me read it to you and see if you can pick up on his motivation. And this this is being addressed to Satan himself, the angel who fell. He actually was a cherubim, not exactly an angel, but a cherubim. But he was a spirit being. Listen to what he says, what Isaiah says. Have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of dawn? You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart. Now what he's doing He's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, but he's referring to the spirit who energized him behind him. I will ascend to heaven. This is what you said in your heart. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. His motivation is to be God. His motivation is to be like God and to be worshipped and to be revered and to be honored as only God is. And he wanted to make his place at, at the very place where God sits in, in the God most high. And so that's, this is Satan's motivation. Satan's motivation is his own pride and his independence. You all, all of us know proud people. We know people who like to talk about themselves only. And uh, it gets to be a boring conversation doesn 't it, after a while? Because none of us are all that impressive at least i 'm not, and I understand that well what 's going on is Satan loved he loves himself, and he wants to be the one he wants to displace God in your life and in the world. now, his methods we are told, with three words used in the New Testament about the methods of Satan. Two of them are translated by the same English word, which is "schemes," but they're two different words and have different meanings. Let me explain them to you. The first one, the first word that's translated "scheme" is found right here in chapter six, verse eleven. If you look there, "Put on the full armor of God, so that you will not you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil." This is this word actually in in the original language is meth- "methodia." That is, it's, we get a word "method" from it. But it, what it's talking about is the way he approaches us. He's deceptive. He never comes against you in the way that you would expect. He comes to tempt you, but he deceives us. And then in Ephesians 4.14 it says this, As a result, we are no longer to be children, that is, immature in the faith, tossed about by by waves of doctrine and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. This is what, these words are the words that are used of Satan himself. His trickery, his craftiness, and his deceitful scheming. In other words, he comes against you. He wants to undermine your faith in Christ, and he does it in a very sneaky way. And so, this word that's translated schemes means deceitful or crafty approach, a cunning device. He comes against you in ways that you never know it's him. And he fools you. He gets you doubting the truth. And you think it's because of this or this or this, but in reality, it's Satan himself who wants to undermine your faith and to get you to doubt the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he uses subterfuge and deception, deceptive practices, in order to seize your heart and get you thinking in the wrong way. Um, in, in chapter 2 of, first, of 2 Corinthians, I want you to turn there, Second Corinthians chapter 2, this passage is a passage in which Paul is dealing with something. He's dealing with unforgiveness among the Corinthians. A man had sinned. We don't know exactly if this is referring back to 1 Corinthians 5 or some other incident, but somebody in the flock had sinned. What do we do with sinners in the church? Well, we preach the gospel to them. God loves people. And sometimes we think, as as conservative Christians, we think we're supposed to hate certain classes of people. Did you know that the Bible tells you that you are not to hate people because of the particular sin they have? But instead, you are to manifest the love of Jesus Christ to them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, every person you ever meet, and regardless of what their lifestyle sin is, Christ died on the cross and he paid a penalty that will deal with their sin if they'll put their trust in him. So it doesn't matter what sin it is that controls their life. Because the the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what happened at Corinth was a man had got involved in some kind of sin, and the and the church could no longer love him. And so this word schemes here is the Greek word naimata, which means thoughts. Now what this implies is that Satan is able to suggest thoughts to you, concepts. And what he had, what he had done to them was he convinced them that they should not forgive this man. And so Paul writes about that. That's what he's writing about in Second Corinthians chapter 2. And he says, in verse 11, he says, So that no advantage would be taken of you by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And this is, the, this is a different word than the other one we looked at. The word here has to do with the, his ability to suggest things to you and you embrace them. Remember what Satan said to Eve? when she says he told us that we should not eat of this tree because if the day that we eat of it, we will die. And so what did Eve say to him? Or what did Satan say to Eve, rather? I'm sorry. He said, you're not going to die. God doesn't want you to eat this tree because you'll know good and evil the way he does. And he doesn't want you to be as smart as he is. He doesn't want you to know what he knows. And this is Satan's this type of schemes. He comes and he suggests things to you that you could be as smart as God. You could know what God, only God knows. He wants, to, he wants to confuse you. He wants to fill your heart. In Acts chapter 5, if you remember Ananias and Sapphira, you remember that couple? Ananias and Sapphira, what happened? Well, what happened was that they were jealous of people who had given, they had sold their property and given it to the church and people loved them for that. Barnabas, for example, sold us a piece of land, and he gave all the money to the church because there were people there. If you remember what happened, there were people who had traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, this celebration, but they came to faith in Christ, and they didn't want to leave. So you got all these people that are living in Jerusalem, but their livelihood is back home. And so they're just trusting that God's going to supply their needs. They've relocated to, to Jerusalem. And so these believers were coming forward and they were selling property and things like that and giving the money to take care of these people. Sounds like a crazy idea, doesn't it? This is what God does to you. He opens your heart. He gives you a giving heart. And so what happened was that Ananias and Sapphira thought, wow, that's something. If you, give, if you sell a piece of property and give the money, everybody thinks really highly of you. So they sold a piece of property. And they gave some of that money to the church, which said it was all of it. I mean, let's say they sold it for $50,000 and they gave $500 and said, here's the money that we made on our property. They were being deceitful. And they were being, they were being influenced by Satan. And they gave into that confusion and lied. And if you remember what happened, Peter said to them, you haven't lied to man, you've lied to God. Because you've lied to the Holy Spirit and they were stricken dead. And the reason they were was because God wanted to teach his young church, his infant church, the importance of telling God the truth. God wants you to live according to truth and he wants you to tell him the truth. The third word that's used of Satan's attacks is really the consequence of his attacks. What is he trying to accomplish? And it's the word snare. Now, you know what a snare is? It's something that traps you, that takes hold of you and holds you down. And this is the word that's used in 2 Timothy 2. Now, the context is this. This this is a letter written to Timothy. And as he leaves this church, there's somebody in the church who's opposing him. And so uh, Paul writes and, and talks to him about this situation and what he ought to do. Now we can turn back to, to Second Timothy 2, if you would turn back there. This is a little further to the, towards the end of, of the New Testament. Second Timothy chapter 2. And this is where Paul is giving this young pastor, Timothy, some advice. And so he says in, in chapter 2, verse 24 to 26, he says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Boy, that's convicting. He must not be quarrelsome but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Now we're told in this context, if I were to take the time to read the whole context, that there was a man there who was opposing Timothy. He's a young pastor, and no doubt he would be greatly tempted to take a stand before the whole church against this man. But instead, Paul tells him that what you have to do is with gentleness correct those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Here's what Satan is trying to accomplish in bringing temptations against you. He wants you to be ensnared. He wants you to believe that when you rebel against God and against the Holy Spirit, that that's what you ought to be doing. He energizes you to do that. And so he's telling Timothy that what he needs to do is speak to him with gentleness, trust the Holy Spirit to bring this message to his heart, and perhaps God would release him from the snare of the devil. In other words, people, there, there are times when believers stand against the truth of the word of God and against the gospel. And it's a satanic ensnarement. He wants to hold you captive in standing against the truth of the word of God. Now you might think, man, it sounds like he's about to buy an airplane <laughs> or something, because there's so much stuff that goes on in the life of the church. And we doubt, we doubt often, if, if God is really engaged, involved in this whole thing. God is the one that we worship. He is the one that we come together with. We, Jesus Christ has given us a new identity and we have this relationship with God. And so we can with good confidence humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and serve him and not stand against him or stand against his leadership. And sometimes what people think is, wow, if we just had a different leader, that's what this man thought. If we just had a different leader who could lead us the way we need to be led, then this problem would go away as he stood against Timothy because Timothy was acting in a way that he didn't like because he was, being, he was being very clear and straightforward. And he said this man was ensnared and he wanted to damage, he wanted to stand against Timothy while he was doing the righteousness of God. But he says, Timothy, don't get in a fight with him. Uh, just correct him with gentleness. Tell him the truth and the spirit of God will bring conviction to his heart and set him free from the snare of the devil. Have you ever had, uh, no, I shouldn't ask this question. Have you ever had a relationship with a believer who was ensnared by Satan? Sure you have. You, don't, you may not know when it was, but it happens all the time. Satan wants to ensnare us and to get us believing in error. You know, sometimes the teachings of Scripture are difficult, aren't they? Uh, I should name some, but I won't because I don't want to to get you all riled up. But there are certain teachings in Scripture that are as clear as day in the text. But we don't like what they say. And so we determine that we're going to stand against that teaching. And this is what was going on in in this small church that Timothy was the pastor of. And so... He, there was, this man was ensnared and was trying to stand against Timothy. And instead of telling Timothy to kick the guy out of the church, send him on his way. He said, correct him with gentleness. In other words, speak the truth to him in love. This is a hard assignment. You know, you all have this assignment. We are told we're supposed to love one another and tell each other the truth in love. And sometimes the truth, we're sure that if we told this person the truth, as we see it in their lives, that they would turn against us. And you may be right. But that's what our assignment is, is to speak the truth in love. And now in love means we're not trying to do damage. If you remember Ephesians 4.30, Ephesians 4.30, that's got to be somebody's uh, on your list of verses that you've memorized. Ephesians 4.30 says, Stop grieving the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed until the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is the one who seals us which means keeps us safe. And yet we can grieve the Holy Spirit. In the context he's saying when you use words that tear people down, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. If I use words to tear you down as a fellow member in the body of Christ, it grieves the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is telling the church that he's writing to in Ephesians 4:30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And that even means when you're just having a little fun gossiping about people. But when we use words to tear people down, we are grieving the spirit of God. Because he's the one who sealed us till the day of the redemption. Did you know that you can look around the room that God loves you? God loves his people. There are people that you find to be very irritating. That you find to be like somebody you don't want to associate with. God loves his people and he has called us to love one another. What's the new commandment? John thirteen thirty four. Anybody, what is that new commandment? Your lips are moving, but I can't hear your voice. Um, in the... Jesus said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another the way I have loved you. Now, if he left off that last phrase, the way I've loved you, it'd been a lot easier, wouldn't it? Because he's ready to go to the cross. And within a very short period of time, he goes to the cross and he dies in the place of his apostles, his disciples. He dies for them. And he says, now I want you to love each other in the same way I've loved you. And that's what he's saying to us today. I'm supposed to be willing to die for you. I'm told that I'm to love my wife the same way. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a huge assignment, isn't it? That's what he's called us to do. So this is why we know we have to rely upon the spirit of God to motivate us and empower us to do the will of God. And what he's saying here is that we are in a spiritual warfare and Satan comes against us and he does everything he can do in order to entice you to live in disobedience to Christ's command. If you're not loving one another the way Christ loved us, you're breaking the commandment of Jesus Christ. And it's easy to see why that would be a temptation, isn't it? And Satan wants to tempt us in that way. He wants to keep us from obeying Christ as though he is king. Somebody told me that the president put up a little plaque that said, anybody could be a president, but only Jesus is king. Uh, I'm not convinced that he actually believes that, but... now, Now I've made all you can... Conservatives angry, But the point is, Jesus is the king. And I think sometimes that just goes right over our head, because you don't, there's hardly any country in the world that has a king. There are a few. The, the England has a queen, but nobody cares what she thinks. People aren't sitting at home wondering, what, would the, "What does the queen want me to do?" But Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God, and we are members of the kingdom through our new birth and are being justified. We are members of the kingdom of God and we have a king. You know what a king is? King isn't the president. The king is the one who has absolute sovereign authority over your life. And so his commandments are the commandments of a sovereign king. And what he commands us to do, I have to take seriously. Now I gotta tell you, I'm tempted to have all the men come up and stand up here and look at your wives and ask you, would you be willing to love your wife like Christ loved her? Would you, would, would you be willing to lay down your life for her? Now, I theoretically would do that. <laughs> In other words, I know that that's exactly what I ought to do, and I think she is, she is worthy of that. I could love her. I love her that much. But I also know I'm a coward. And so if they put a gun to my head, I don't know what I might do. But God has called us to love each other that way. I'm supposed to be willing to die for you and look at you. Isn't that amazing? This is what he's called us to do. So you can see how Satan has a heyday with believers because he comes against us and he tries to convince us just as he did Adam and Eve. God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat of this tree. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Satan comes against them and convinces them that they ought to disobey God and that they question the motivation of God. Why would he command such a thing? He would command such a thing because he's a righteous God and he will empower us to obey him. The one thing I do know is not that I could easily lay down my life for you or my wife, but I do know that the Spirit of God is able to motivate me to do that very thing. And he's, he's able to motivate you to love one another the way Christ has loved you. That's huge. That is a massive, huge commandment. You know, sometimes I have a, a pastor friend call me and he was telling me about this couple that were having trouble and how the elders of the church were trying to fix them and they were doing a lousy job of it. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's what we typically do, Right. We can't fix everybody's problems, but we actually call you to be obedient to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, he's your king. He has absolute authority over your life. And so when you get into into marriage counseling, for example, you have to say to the wife, God has called you to submit to your husband and to respect him. And typically she says, you don't know him. Oh yeah, I do. (laughs) And God's called you to respect Him and to submit to His leadership. And you, husband, God has called you to lay down your life for your wife, to love her the way Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That's what He's called us to do. And He will empower us to do that very thing. I haven't—I've never in my whole life heard of a man having to to uh, a Christian man having to lay down his life for his wife, but I'm sure it happens. I mean, there are situations in this world where people are living for Christ. I have a friend who has a ministry in China, and I was with him the other day, and he was telling me about what's going on over there. The church he used to work through, he has a ministry there, and he used to work for this church, no longer exists. They simply simply destroyed it. The government came in and knocked the building down and put it into a big hole and covered it up. And he he said, "Your, your, your life is at risk if you confess that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, where he goes. Isn't that something? But what we have confidence in and what we would hear from them is the spirit of God can empower us to obey his commandments and to walk in obedience to Christ as our king. And so Satan's going to come against you and he's going to tell you, you can't do that. That's too dangerous. You can't do that. It's going to damage you and your family. my age, I have a family and three children and 10 grandchildren. If I was to die, I just got rid of my motorcycle. I gave it to a fellow pastor who's a little younger than me. (laughs) And the reason I did that was I got to thinking, if I have a wreck on this bike and hurt myself where I can't, take care of my family, what's going to happen? Can you imagine that? And so I had to decide that anybody who would keep riding a motorcycle and not worry about their family, they need to talk to me so I can straighten them out. (laughs) I'm looking at the other guy who rides a motorcycle here. Uh, God's called us to love each other. That's a huge command. It's massive that you're called to love your brother, sister in Christ, the way Christ loved you. This isn't just, hey, I like you. You're okay. I wouldn't want to hang out with you. I get kind of tired of being around you. No, this says we're to love each other the way Christ loved the church. And let me tell you, this is where Satan attacks. This is where he wants to undermine your faith. Now think of it. With Adam and Eve, he said, you're, you're, you're not going to die. You eat, eat of this tree because you'll be as wise as God. You'll know good from evil. And their eyes were enlightened. Do you remember? It says they ate of the fruit and their eyes were opened up. And they began to see good and evil to the point they hid from God. Isn't it a miracle that you don't hide from God? Why is that? It's because you've believed the gospel. It's because you actually believe that you've been made right in Christ Jesus and therefore you can talk to the holy God. You can live before him. But Satan wants to undermine that faith. He wants to keep you from having that confidence so that you begin to hide from his people and from your God. Now, this is what the Bible says that he does. This is how he attacks the world. First of all, he blinds their minds to the gospel. Have you ever noticed this, that you're trying to share the gospel with somebody and they need it so desperately, and yet you can see the blindness? What is that? Well, we're told that this is what Satan does. He blinds the minds of unsaved people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded their minds. And so you need the Holy Spirit when you share the gospel. If you're actually sharing the gospel with somebody who is, who's being, is living under the influence of Satan's lies, you need the power of the Spirit just to share the gospel, just to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second thing it says is that he snatches God's word from their hearts. As soon as you give someone the gospel, Satan snatches that from their hearts. And it, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in, the heart, in his heart. That's, that's incredible, isn't it? That's, that's why this, this work of sharing Christ with people is a huge thing. And you need the Holy Spirit to go before you. You need the Holy Spirit to prepare the heart. And you need the Holy Spirit to empower you to share the gospel. This is no small thing. It isn't simply memorizing First Corinthians 15. It's coming to have a love for people to the point that your trust in God is such that you know the Spirit will empower you to share Christ with people. And then it says he uses them to discredit the Christian faith. He, he uses people who have not come to faith in Christ to discredit the, the, the Christian faith. It says it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer a slave girl having a spirit of divination. So she's under the control of Satan. She met us and was bringing her masters much profit for, in, by fortune telling, following after Paul and us. She kept crying out saying, these men are bondservants of the most high God. She was telling the truth, wasn't she? Who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And you think, well, why don't we see this as a blessing? She's been converted. She knows what the gospel is. No, this, this girl is living under, this young lady was living under the, the sway of Satan. And she was discrediting those men that she was saying were messengers of God. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed. I guess it's okay to get annoyed. And, and, he, and he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very moment. Isn't that something that Satan will use people who don't even know Christ to discredit Christians and undo their ability to do their work. And then it says it energizes those who are in disobedience. Energizes. We were all, when we're, we're told that when we got saved, we were in a state where Satan was energizing us to live in disobedience to God. He actually energized us. He gave us the power to say no to God. And yes, to selfishness. And yet God brought us out of that. He set us free from the very thing, this energizing of our disobedience. He causes people to relax in their sin. The way it's put in, John, in 1 John five nineteen, it says, we're sitting in his lap and he's rocking us to sleep. That's what he's wanting to do. He's wanting to keep us, he's wanting to keep those who are outside of Christ from coming to Christ and he causes them to relax. To relax. You know, becoming a Christian would really cause you a lot of problems. All of a sudden, you've got all these things in your life that you have to deal with, that you wouldn't have to deal with if you simply say no to the gospel. And so he makes them willing to do his will instead of God's. That's who he is. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan will come against you. You know what the Bible tells us to do every time Satan comes against us? It tells us that we should be sober and alert. That we should keep our minds clear because Satan wants to confuse us. He wants to come and undermine our confidence and faith in Jesus Christ. This is what he wants to do. His attacks on the people of God, let me just mention five of them that were told specifically in Scripture. First of all, he accuses them, designed to be, bring God's judgment on them. You have a few things probably you wouldn't want anybody to know, right? I'm, I'm just assuming that you're like normal Christians, that we typically have things in our life that we wouldn't want anybody to know. What does Satan do? He wants to accuse you. He wants to take that ammunition. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything, but he's really smart, and he's got he's got a network of spirit beings that keep an eye on us. It's kind of like Google. You know, everywhere you go, they know, right? They have all the information on you. Well, let me tell you, that's nothing in comparison to Satan. He knows exactly how to tempt you. He knows your weakness. He knows how you're where you're vulnerable and what he wants to do is undermine your faith in Jesus Christ. So he accuses them. Secondly, he hinders their work. That is the people of God. He hinders their work. This is, is great. in in First Thessalonians, when Paul went to Thessalonica, he was only there for about three weeks and preached the gospel. And a whole group of people came to faith in Christ. And then he went down to Athens and it says, he, this is what he told them when he wrote him a letter. He said, for we wanted to come to you. We wanted to come back and visit you. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. You know what that word hindered means? It means he ripped up the road. He made it impossible for Paul to get back and talk to them. Now, we don't know what he meant exactly by that. But the point is, he didn't want Paul going back and encouraging them. Because you know how it is, once you start living the Christian life and you start facing the hindrances of Satan in your life, you want somebody who knows what they're doing to talk to you and encourage you and tell you that the greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And then it says he plants false believers among uh, real believers. It says in Matthew 13, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. He sows them. That is, he puts them among Christians to be a part of their group. And he says, and the harvest is the Jesus speaking. Of course, there's a Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. He wants to plant unbelievers among believers to influence them to stop being so radical about their faith in Christ.
1: And he influences
0: unbelievers to persecute them. This is what's happening in China. It's incredible the kind of persecution that's going on around the world. You all, I think you're all aware of this book, uh, The Insanity of God. I've mentioned it before. The Insanity of God is the title of this book. And what happened was this guy went to, where's Mogadishu? Somalia. It's in Somalia. He went there as a missionary. He didn't, he, it was so, the thing was so out of control that he put his family in Nigeria, but he went down, he would go down to Mogadishu and he was working with this group, this relief group, but he only, there were only 19 Christians in the nation when he got there. He stayed there a year. And at the end of the year, there were no Christians there because they'd all been killed. And then his son had an asthma attack and died. And so he was angry with God. And so when he called his book, The Insanity of God, what he meant was, I don't get it. I was willing to go and lay down my life for the gospel. And God allows these believers to be murdered and he allows my own son to die as I'm in, doing this effort. We came home. He was a teacher at Liberty University. And his students said, why don't you go visit all the perse- persecuted Christians in the world and see what they are like? What kind of people are they? In other words, why would God allow Christians to be persecuted? Why would he allow that? And so and they thought there's a good reason for it. And we think you'll find out. Go visit them. So he did. He went to about six nations, and he hung out with them. I remember when he he talked about China. When he went to China, he went on a retreat with all these pastors to hear how they were doing. And he said the most amazing thing, they had all been in prison for their Christianity, all of them, every single one of them. And he said, and they talked as though that going to prison was like going to seminary. It's where they really began to understand the gospel and all of its implications. And he was dumbfounded. What's going on here? You know, God doesn't run his kingdom like you would. So don't be surprised when you discover he doesn't. You know, for example, you go back and read the life of Jesus in the Gospels, and you find a man who loved people, people that you would have hated, people that you would have not even spoken to. He speaks the Gospel to them. Sometimes he's so straightforward to them about their great need You think he's insulted them, but he tells them the truth in love because he wants to see them come to faith. Now, you may not believe that, but that's what the Bible says. First Timothy chapter two, verse four says that God desires all men to be saved. So if you're here today and you're not a believer, God wants you to hear the gospel and he wants you to believe the gospel. And he wants you to come to be one of his children and and experience forgiveness of sins and new life in Christ. That's what God wants. And that's what he is doing. And so all of us, it's true that Satan is against us. He wants to attack us. He wants to bring us to the place where we feel so weak and so incompetent that it's, it's, we want to throw up our hands and stop. That's the way this guy was when he got back to where he was from. He just, wanted to, he just wanted to hang it all up and never go back to a country like that. But his students talked him into going and seeing what were the effects of this kind of persecution. And what he found out was God's building them into real disciples of Jesus Christ. You're all aware that we exist to make disciples, right? I hope we say that enough, that that's why we exist as a church, to make disciples. But discipleship is not a program. If, you want to, if you're wondering, well, where's the discipleship program? No, it isn't a program. It's a life. Discipleship is a life. It's a life of coming to be followers of Jesus Christ. And it's coming to be uh, grow enough that we understand what the cost really is. Remember when Jesus said, you, in order to follow me, you have to hate your mother and father and sister and brother, and even your own life? Well, he didn't mean he wants you to go cuss out your mama. What he meant was, you're going to have to love me above everything else, no matter what it costs to follow me, that you will follow. This is what he's called us to. And Satan... Is aware of that. And Satan wants to discourage you. He wants to fill you with doubt. He wants to convince you that this is ridiculous. That you would commit yourself to this kind of a life. That you would commit to as being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he wants you to bail. He wants you to say I give up. I don't want to, to, to follow Christ in this way any longer. That's what he's up to. That's his whole purpose. And this isn't some... Some uh, you know young kid who just doesn't like the way the world is and who's ready to you know plant a bomb here. Or there, this is the highest of God's creation. He was beautiful. God created him, and he's very he's very smart. He's smarter than you. He's even smarter than than uh, Ryan Peterson. Don't tell him I said that. But he's the dean of math and science at LMC. He's a very smart young man. But Satan's smarter than him. And he wants to deceive you. That's his whole plan. And so stand against the devil. Next, next week what we're going to do is look at the rest of this passage and see how Paul gives us instructions on what we ought to do. The kind of mindset I have to maintain. The kind of heart that needs to be built in me. The kind of disciple I need to become in order to walk with Christ. God has called you and He's placed you in the body of Christ and He's given you the Spirit and He's given you a spiritual gift. And He says to you, now use that gift as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That's an incredible calling. And it might be dangerous. Some of you saw in the news uh, something that happened in China when this persecution that just is in full swing right now. The government went in and they, they bulldozed these churches. And these were house churches. They weren't the three self churches. These were churches that were illegal. They went in and just bulldozed them. And in one case, they actually showed this video on the news. The pastor's wife went out and stood in front of the building. And they bulldozed her into the same hole and covered it up. This is, It's crazy, isn't it, to follow Jesus? It's either the greatest thing in all the world or it's absolutely nuts. But this is what God has called us to, to walk in obedience to him, whatever he calls us to do. And so I would like to convince you of that. I guess part of the thing I have to do is change my lifestyle and start living like this. And that's what you have to do as well. Let's pray. Right, why don't you stand with me? So I am going to close in prayer and then we'll sing. Our Father, we are a broken people. We are so aware of how needy we are of the salvation that you promised us, of the Spirit of God at work in our lives to empower us and to encourage us, to give us the courage to live for you. So we pray, Father, today as we think of these things, as we look in the Word, I pray that these truths would sink deep into our heart and we'd see our great need of walking with you depending upon the power of the Spirit to accomplish your good work, Father. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for calling us into the kingdom. Thank you for giving us this assignment to go into all the world and make disciples of Jesus Christ. We are so grateful for that. And we just pray that you would give us enough courage to go next door just to talk to our neighbors, to talk to those that you put in our path. We pray that you'd give us the courage to speak for Jesus and not succumb to Satan and all of his words that he has in order to fill us with fear and trepidation. We pray that we would walk in courage as we depend upon the Spirit. We ask this in in the name of your son. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.